Thank you, and good morning. Well, we are at the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and so by way of a, a little review and for the next few minutes, I just want you to pretend that you are a member of the First Thessalonica Bible Church on a Sunday morning back in the first century. Only you're not meeting in a room or in a building like this. You are in someone's home that is spacious enough to accommodate about 30 of you, give or take. And by of you, I mean you are a combination of Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles, all ages, socioeconomic backgrounds. This is who you are. And you're all sitting around on couches, or maybe some of the young ones are sitting on the floor, and you've just shared a potluck meal together. And most likely, that meal began with your host standing up and breaking bread and saying grace over it and passing around the body of Christ given for you. And then he raises the cup and he reminds everyone why it is you all gather here every week and how it is possible that such a diverse group of people can not only share table fellowship together but can call each other brother and sister. He says the blood of Christ poured out for you Let's drink it together, and you do. After the meal, someone prays, someone else leads in a hymn, and then someone is selected to stand and read aloud a portion of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is, we know, the Old Testament, because that is a rich tradition that your church brought over from the synagogue. But today is different. A letter has arrived from Paul this week, and he has in the strongest terms urged you, charged you before the Lord to have his letter read aloud to everyone who calls First Thessalonica Bible Church home. And it's not lost on you that Paul is elevating his letter and his voice to the same level as the Hebrew Scriptures and the prophets. Now imagine that you're listening closely and that this is the first time you've ever heard Paul's letter and you smile as you hear his words of overwhelming love and joy and pride in you as a church and to keep your hope alive and and to inspire you to holy living he punctuates every single section of his letter with the the comfort and the words that Jesus is coming back And shockingly, Paul reveals something that you didn't know before. Not only is Jesus coming back, he's coming down, and you're going up to meet him in the air, right on the coattails of your newly resurrected loved ones. And you'll never be separated from them again. And the reader of Paul's letter pauses, and he takes a sip of water, and you're on the edge of your seats because you're thinking, really? Are you kidding me? That all sounds kind of awesome and a little freaky if you're afraid of heights and dead people rising. (laughs) So when is this going to happen, Paul? Because we're so tired of suffering. We're so ready to see our loved ones again. And now we're back in today, and we feel the same way too, don't we? We have been through a traumatic season of fear and anxiety and loss, have we not? How many times over the last two years have you thought or said aloud, I just with Jesus would come back? When is he going to come set things right? And how bad does it have to get before he does? 
And if Paul were here today, he would say the same things to us as he did to the Thessalonians in the first century. He would say, you cannot know when. And that isn't the point. Being ready is the point. And so the two things that Paul wants to communicate here at the end of his letter is don't worry, live ready. He wants to relieve our anxiety about the future and to tell us how to prepare for it. And it has everything to do with who you are and where you belong. So let's begin with reading 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. It's on the screens. And I've highlighted the pronouns for you because they're important. About the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden disaster, destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Well, let's just make a few observations. First, the pronouns um, tell us that Paul has distinguished between two groups of people, right? You and them. Second, we, we see that Paul has evidently already taught them about the day of the Lord, and so he doesn't really explain what it is. So just to fill in the blanks a little bit, there are two main things that we need to understand about the day of the Lord. First, it will be a time of judgment and destruction poured out on the earth against the wicked, against this dark age, against those who in their pride and their arrogance have ignored and rejected and rebelled against God, who oppose God and his people and whose lives reflect that pride and rebellion and rejection. And all the Old Testament prophets wrote about that day, and they call people to repent. The second thing we need to know about this judgment is that its purpose is to usher in the time of complete restoration and ultimate salvation for God's people. Christians came to understand the day of the Lord as the return of Jesus. And there are ongoing debates, as I'm sure you know, among theologians who study eschatology. That's the study of the end times. Um, The debates are as to the order of what's going to happen when and for how long and what it's going to look like and all of that. Books have been written on it. You've probably read a few. And we don't have time to get into all those discussions today, so let's just stick with what Paul reveals to us in 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 3 tells us that it will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And it will be at a time when people are saying peace and security, which sort of mocks a Roman saying at the time. The Pax Romana, the the Roman peace, you may remember it in history, was a 200-year era where there was relative tranquility and peace in the empire. Of course, that peace was won through war and assassinations and violence, but still it was a slogan that they were proud of just reminds me how often we are tempted to look to governments or to leaders to give us peace and security, to save us from all kinds of real or perceived disasters. But truly, y'all, no person or system can set all things right and ultimately save us. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in our political processes that our 21st century Western democracy affords us. Those are good things. But always remember who your sovereign is. Jesus is your king. 
And when he returns, those who do not know him and therefore aren't expecting him, aren't ready for him, will be surprised to see him and surprised that he's holding them to account. The day of the Lord will not only be unexpected, it will also be inescapable. It's going to happen, like the labor pains of a pregnant woman. And I can relate to this because I can remember that um, whenever I would get to the end of my pregnancies, as my belly was growing bigger and bigger, so was my anxiety, the suspense, the dread of when labor would start, along with the sense of, uh-oh, there's no turning back now. It's, it's kind of too late. This thing is going to happen, and it's going to be painful. But at the same time, I welcomed the labor because I had great hope of something wonderful at the end of it. My sisters, we have been living in the age of uh uh-oh since Jesus came the first time. He told us that we're going to experience some birth pangs before he returns. The pain that we experience sometimes in this world, pandemics, disasters, war, trials of all sorts, Jesus said those are like labor pains, and they will intensify until the day of our ultimate deliverance comes. But Paul would later write in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And he was referring to the return of Jesus The day of the Lord for those who aren't ready will be sudden, unexpected, destructive, and inescapable. But Paul didn't write those words to scare his beloved Thessalonians, but to encourage and comfort them. And so he quickly moves to reassurance in verses 4 and 5 and also down in verse 29. He writes, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief, For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. In other words, don't worry. You won't be surprised, nor will you experience God's wrath. Because you are children of the light and you belong to the day. It's a question of identity and belonging who you are and where you belong determines everything about your future and also how you live your life now. So a little background to the meaning of the concepts of light and dark and day and night. Paul's world understood the scriptures as dividing history into two ages. There is this present evil age as they called it that was uh, characterized by darkness and chaos and death and all kinds of evil associated with the night. And then there was the age to come, which was the time of the Messiah who would bring in goodness and light and peace to all who dwell in darkness. When Jesus entered our world the first time, he came announcing that the kingdom of God was breaking into this present evil age. And he came to call a people to himself. And he offered his body on the cross to absorb God's judgment for our sins so that those who are willing to trust him to identify with him, could become children of light who belong to God's family and who are rescued from God's judgment. But we know that the old age didn't end with Jesus' death and resurrection. The new age broke into the old, but it didn't overtake it fully. And so now we live in the overlap 
of the ages. The Apostle John put it this way, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's the true light of Christ shining through the church. That's why theologians call this the church age. But I would call it the twilight zone. (laughs) If you ever watch the old TV series, maybe you would call it Stranger Things. (laughs) Maybe you would call it the upside down. So as we know, the twilight zone and the upside down is a strange place to be. It's dark and it's confusing and you know you don't belong there. You belong to the day zone. You belong to the upside right. It is your destiny, but, but not yet. When Jesus returns and brings heaven down to earth, there will be a final and total eclipse of the old age where the new heavens and the new earth will be all that there is and it will be completely illuminated by the light of God's glory in the face of Christ who sits on the throne. Well, in setting up contrast between the two ages, between light and dark and day and night, it forces us to ask the question, where do I belong in this picture? Paul declared that all the Thessalonians were children of light who belonged to the day. How did he know that? How do we know that? Well, it's because, as we learned in chapter 1, they had welcomed the gospel of Jesus. But that didn't only mean that they simply began to follow a few rules or to believe a few points of doctrine. It meant a complete change of identity and lifestyle for them. In other words, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, They turned to God from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from, this coming, uh, from the coming wrath. In other words, they had left their old identities and fully embraced Jesus as their Lord and their King. And that's how Paul knew that they were children of the light and belonged to the day. And it doesn't mean that they were perfect, as we'll see in a minute, as as we've talked about before. No one reaches perfection until Jesus returns. And then, as the Apostle John says, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. You know, as I've been thinking about identity and belonging, I've realized that we all wear lots of invisible labels around, don't we? Some labels um, we have no control over. They just are. Some labels we choose, some of them change over time. And they reveal things about who we are and how we experience life. My labels include, obviously, woman. And more specifically, senior. I don't like that label. Until I I get a discount at the movies, then I like it. (laughs) But I got to tell you, the day I got my Medicare card in the mail, that was an uh uh-oh day for me. (laughs) It was painful, I got to tell you. (laughs) Other labels I wear, I love. Wife, mother, grandmother, student, perpetually it seems, (laughs) teacher. One of my labels is the number six and the word beside it, afraid. I'm a six on the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that personality tool that reveals both the healthy and unhealthy aspects of our personality types. And one of my unhealthy traits uh, when I'm under stress is that I am prone to anxiety and fear as a sort of default setting. I'm always alert to danger, real or imagined. I'm always thinking two steps ahead of it. And when I'm honest with myself, I have to admit that many of my day-to-day decisions, as well as the big ones, are based on fear, self-protection, 
and comfort. What I eat, what I put on my calendar, where I spend my money, and how I relate to other people, and a lot of other things. And that's in normal stressful times. Throw in a pandemic and cultural upheaval, and I have a real fight on my hands against fear and all of its manifestations. What is your default setting? You don't have to know your Enneagram number to know how you most likely respond when you're under stress. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's perfectionism. Maybe it's escapism or laziness or some form of self-medicating or self-indulgence, uh, ice cream or <laughs> shopping or alcohol. What invisible labels do you wear in your lowest moments? Inadequate, unworthy, unloved, insecure, broken, weak, what has happened in this present evil age of pandemics and social division is that not only do we tend to live into our most negative labels, but we are very prone to label other people, highlight the differences between us, and take sides. And it's happening in the church, and it's happening in our families, and it is evil, and it's part of the darkness in the twilight zone, in the upside down. But the label that defines the truest and most lasting a part of me and of you is child of light, child of light, belonger to the day. And on the day of the Lord, that is the only label that's going to stick. That is the only label that's going to matter. And it should be the only label that matters to any of us today as Jesus followers. So what if we started wearing that label around? How would it change our lives and the way we relate to people? I know personally that when I remember who I am and where I belong, my default label doesn't say fear anymore. It says brave. And when I see that label on other people, the label that means you belong to the day you're a child of the light, I love and accept them as my sisters and brothers. It doesn't mean that all our perceptions and differences magically go away and we're all suddenly kumbaya. But it does mean that we can and we must do life differently in the overlap of the ages. So let's look at what Paul says it means to be a child of light and a belonger to the day. He's exhorted us not to worry about the future, and now he tells us how to live ready in the here and now. Verses 6 to 11. He says, So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. May I paraphrase that just a little bit? There is a conflict going on between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. So don't walk around in your pajamas with bedhead and crusty eyes, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Wake up. Get up. Put on your best outfits of faith, hope, and love so that you don't let the darkness overcome you. Jesus did not die only to forgive your sins, but to give you a whole new way to live life until he returns and a whole new family to live that life with.
I think it's interesting that Paul speaks of faith, hope, and love as armor. Life in the twilight zone is a fight. There is an apocalyptic struggle going on between God and those who oppose him and his people. We are children of the light who belong to the day, but there are children of darkness who belong to the night, and there are rulers in the spiritual realms who are agents of darkness and agents of our enemy, the devil, and they love to sow seeds of doubt, discord, and division. They love COVID and all the pain and loss it's caused. They delight in the divisions, hate, and violence going on in our country. They love it that Russia is poised to invade Ukraine and start a bloody war. They love all our negative labels. They laugh at our birth pangs. But we don't have to succumb to their intimidation. We don't have to, to succumb to imitation or to fear or to despair. Jesus told us to expect hard times. And now through Paul, he tells us to armor up so we can push back the darkness. The Thessalonians weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs just waiting for Jesus to return. Nor were they cowering in fear. Nor were they imitating the darkness. Recall in chapter 1 where Paul bragged on them for their work produced by faith. Even though it meant hardship and suffering for them, they were working hard to get the gospel out into their world, well beyond the borders of their city. And their love wasn't passive either. Paul bragged about their labor, their hard work that was motivated by love in all kinds of ways. And he, um, and he uh, applauded them for their hope that was manifested in endurance. In other words, they kept going. They didn't look back. Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before people that they may see what? your good works, and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have work to do while we wait for Jesus because Peter's letter tells us that Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish in the judgment, but all to come to repentance. So as children of the light and belongers to the day, we need to stay spiritually awake so we can participate in Jesus' rescue mission that delivers people out of the kingdom of darkness and delivers them into the kingdom of light. And we battle this darkness day in and day out through acts of faith, demonstrations of love, and enduring hope. And that requires self-sacrifice and self-control. How many of you watched the Olympics the last couple of weeks? Oh, good. I love the Winter Olympics. My favorite um, athletic events are those beautiful ice skaters and ice dancers and also the amazing alpine jumpers. You know those ones that go flying backwards down that treacherously steep grade and then they catapult off this ramp and they do all kinds of flips and twists and turns and amazingly stay alive and even land on their feet? It, it's just incredible. And I always wonder, how did they get there doing that? Now, I've never known or talked to an Olympian, but I can only imagine that they started out one day, probably when they were young, just doing what they loved to do. And then they did it more and more, and, and they eventually got pretty good at it. And I don't know, one day I think they just started seeing themselves as Olympians. Maybe someone saw their potential and gave them that label, Olympian. But then how did they get from seeing themselves as Olympians to actually getting there at the Olympics. 
Well, I can only imagine it took a whole lot of self-sacrifice and self-control. Um, I think it took day in and day out and year in and year in. They had to say no to some things so they could say yes to other things that would enable them to one day, one day, one glorious day, to compete at their highest level in their sport. They had to face their fears. They had to overcome their weaknesses by practice, 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 building up physical and mental endurance as they went and keeping their eyes always on the prize, always on that goal. And they weren't alone, of course. Even if they competed individually, they, were, they had an expert coach and a whole team behind them supporting and encouraging them, including family members who had to sacrifice a lot for them to be there too. But finally the day came, and they were ready and over the moon excited. That's how I want to be when I see Jesus. I want to be over the moon excited. I'm a child of the light and a belonger to the day, and I want to be ready. But I can't do it alone, and neither can you. Repeatedly, Paul addresses the Thessalonians as brothers and sisters. Seven times in this chapter alone. Seven times. And that means something significant and important. And so he ends this letter with some final instructions to the church about how to do, how to work as a team so everyone is ready to see Jesus. So I need to move through this, this list sort of quickly, but I didn't want to ignore it. I don't want to gloss over it. We need these words as much as the Thessalonians did. So 12 and 13. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, I take it that Timothy had brought back a report to Paul that there were um, some issues, some tensions going on between the leaders and those that were being led, and that shouldn't surprise us, should it? On any given team and any group of people, especially a very, group, uh, very uh, diverse group of people, there will always be differences of opinion and how things should be done and all of that. And I hear Paul saying, your leaders are faithful people who are working hard on your behalf and they're doing the best they can. So cut them some slack and give them the honor and respect they deserve and let peace be your highest priority as children of light. Verses 14 and 15, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Each one of these things we could take and just write a whole book on probably. But notice that Paul did not delegate these activities to the leadership alone, right? He is exhorting everyone to give pastoral care to those who are in need. And I'm imagining this small church where everybody knows everyone and they're all up into each other's business and lives in a good way. They know when their members are struggling and they take it upon themselves to intervene in love. And sometimes that love has to be tough. Warn those who are idle, Paul says. It's a grab-em-by-the-shoulders kind, of sh- uh, grab kind of love. Like, wake up, lazy bones. We've got work to do. Get with the program. Sometimes it's speaking words of love and comfort and truth and, um, and affirmation to the timid, to the faint-hearted, to those who have been traumatized, to those struggling with temptation and doubt and bitterness. 
We walk th with people through their struggles, and we don't give up, and we don't require th that they have a deadline to get over their issues because, as Paul says, we are patient with everyone. And then finally, most commentators view Paul's last exhortations in 16 to 22 as instructions for their corporate worship. This was interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> so when you gather, whether you feel like it or not, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. These are the ways that the church lives into our identity and belongingness in the overlap of the ages. We don't worry about the future because we know who we are and where we belong. We are children of the light and we belong to the day. But that's not just a label. It means that we stay alert and that we actively pursue faith, hope, and love in the community of the beloved and in this dark world until we see Jesus face to face. And that day's going to be a good day, y'all, because we're going to be ready because Jesus is going to see to it. Verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray.